0: Thank you very much to the book of Judges. We go tonight and we're going to read uh, two or three verses out of chapter six and then move into chapter number seven. So you're in the book of Judges and chapter number six. And uh, I think I'll just go ahead and read the verses and then we'll kind of just give a brief refresher and then get into our passage for tonight, which actually is uh, the first eight verses of chapter 7. But look down in uh, verse 33 of chapter 6, where it uh, says after they had taken care of the altar of Baal and, and uh, built the altar to offer that uh, bullock to the Lord. And then in verse 33 it says, then All the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him. He was a significant, apparently, an a significant individual of the tribe of Manasseh, And he was gathered after him, uh, no doubt influenced others. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered after him and sent messengers unto Asher, Zebulun, and unto Naphtali. And those are those northern uh, uh, tribes. If you look where Manasseh is, uh, above Jerusalem and uh, above a few miles there, then the other tribes are on up in the northern part. All right, so they all came to them. Now it doesn't say it here, but when you read the whole account, you put the numbers together. There were thirty-two thousand men that came together uh, there, where uh, where Gideon was and where he blew the trumpet. Thirty-two thousand men gathered themselves. Well, that's when we talked about, night before last, how that he put out the fleece. So that's in verse number 36 and through verse 40. We've already talked about that. So go to chapter 7 and verse 1. After the fleece is done and God has given uh, Gideon further assurance, verse 1, then Jeroboam, that's Gideon who is Gideon, uh, contends with Baal, that's what the word means, then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, or Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Now, you shouldn't use your imagination here and try to get the picture in your mind. It'll really be important tomorrow night that we kind of have a a mental picture. Use your imagination. Don't just look at this and say, now. Nah, now nah. you gotta, you got to think about what's going on and get the picture in your mind. So let's look at that again. Uh, they left the, the well, or they were beside the well of Herod, which doesn't mean anything to us, but look at this. So that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Mora in the valley. So they were encamped in this valley called Jezreel, in the previous verses, and there they were. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore, God said to Gideon, Go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid Let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead, and there returned of the people 20 and 2,000. And there remained 10,000. That's how we know there were 32. Verse 4, And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. You might be kind of recalling in your mind how many Midianites there are. 135,000, and God says, nope, too many. Bring them down into the water, uh, under the water, and I will try them for thee there, and it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee, and of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. And so he brought down the people under the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink, separate them like you did the ones that lapped like a dog. Verse 6, And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down, 9,700 upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, uh, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand, and their trumpets, And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man into his tent, and retained those three hundred men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. And uh, great action takes place tomorrow night. I'm looking forward to that. But we're going to stop right there in verse number 8. And what we read here is really uh, God giving a uh, fitness test. Not everybody's fit to do what they need to do in relation to the Midianites and what God has for them. So God is going to separate them, as you can see there. And what we want to talk about, I mean, you can see what happened right there with your own eyes, but what we want to talk about tonight is, uh, does this speak to me at all? Does this have anything to do with us? And so I've pretty much come to the conclusion. Yes, it does. Or we probably wouldn't be reading here. Yeah. Oh, it does. All right. We'll see about that. So, Lord, we thank you again for the time to assemble together in this place. And we thank you, God, for your precious word. And we are grateful, O God, that you have seen fit to inspire and preserve your, your precious word so that we can stand and Be confident that we are declaring the very Word of God. Help us now tonight. Help us to have hearing ears. Help us to have clarity of thought and mind. And I pray that by the working of your Holy Spirit, you would arrest our attention from distractions or for the wandering of the mind onto things that don't have anything to do with why we are here. And so I pray that we would honor you and how we give attention to the Word tonight. Help me. I want to. I want to communicate clearly, and I pray that you'd give me clarity of thought and mind. And I pray then that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make this an effectual, fruitful, profitable time in the Word, in the life of every person, and in the life of this Your Church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. God bless you. you may be seated. So, just so that we're all together here, just a little bit of a reminder, remember that the Midianites had held, pretty much held hostage uh, life in uh, the land of Canaan, or at least in this region, this area of it. Made life miserable for them. And they were under oppression of the Midianites, don't forget, for seven years, and uh, you and I have to wonder, how in the world could it take them seven years before they called on the Lord? But it did probably reflect upon our own life. We probably had some hard-headed, stubborn-hearted moments or days or years in our own lives, haven't we? So that when we called on the Lord, we are asking ourselves, why didn't I do this before? And that's where they were. So they called on the Lord, and God in His mercy, He, uh, he heard their cry. And so, what action did the Lord take? Well, he went to a young man that was of the tribe of Manasseh, a farm boy, and uh, spoke to him and called him a mighty man of valor. That's still one of of my favorite portions where the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, and and, and, in pre incarnate form speaks to Gideon and calls him a mighty man of valor. And (laughs) here was uh, Gideon harvesting or threshing rather the wheat in the wine press for fear of the Midianites. While he is operating in fear, God's calling him a mighty man of valor. Now, unless you're God, you wouldn't do that. But God knew what he was doing, and he knew where he was going uh, with this man Gideon. So uh, he speaks to Gideon and tells him this amazing thing to, that he has for him, and, and then he gives him some assurance and shows him a sign of who he is by the offering that is offered upon a rock, and the fire of God consumes that offering. And then he gives him further encouragement uh, and 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 also has him uh, go to his father's own property and pull down. This sort what we were last night. Pull down the altar of Baal that was on his father's property and cut down the grove. And this would have been the male and the female de- uh, deity. Baal is the male deity. That's the altar represented there, and, uh, representing him. And then the grove is representing the female god Ashtoreth. And so he cuts down the grove and pulls down the altar like God says. And so the people's response to that was they thought Gideon ought to die. In case you weren't here last night, just think about that, would you? They cried to the Lord and asked for deliverance. And so God raises up a man deliverance uh, to deliver them. And then God says, but before we can move ahead with deliverance, then the altar of Baal has to go. That altar of Baal was between them and God, no question about it. And this is hideous; it's 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 an incredibly uh, uh, an incredible offense against God. This altar, so put down the altar and cut down the grove, and off build an altar to the Lord and offer that sacrifice to me. And so Gideon did that, and he obeyed God. And then he blew the trumpet where we read tonight. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, blew the trumpet, and 32,000 men were assembled together to him. And then he asked for the fleece. And so then we come to our chapter. Now, anybody that reads the Bible and doesn't see the humor that's in the Word of God, I feel sorry for them. I really do. Because you got 32,000 men assembled. As you begin in verse number seven, and. uh, They are pitched in this certain place, and the Midianites were to their north. I I don't mean to run into the ground, but 135,000 strong. Now, this is is not a fairy tale. This is not a funny book. This actually happened with people that were real people just like you and me. And so here were these men assembled together with Gideon, 32,000 strong, which I myself am totally impressed with that he could blow a trumpet coming out of nowhere, this Gideon, being a farm boy, uh, uh, youngest of his family, in Manasseh, and his dad, he said was a poor man, and he comes out of virtually nowhere, except by the hand of God, and he makes him known, he blows a trumpet and 32,000 men come. And so they assemble together to him, and so what does the Lord say? This is a good number for us to go with. No, the Lord says this uh, Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many, not for you, but for me. I said it wasn't too many for Gideon. I guarantee it wasn't too many for the rest of the 32,000 that were there. They probably thought if we could triple this, you know, and have it about three times this much, we might be in the game. But it's 32,000 it against 135,000. The Lord shows up and says to Gideon and says, no, there are too many people for me. Now, it's at this point that you and I look at it and say, okay, now from a human standpoint, this doesn't make a lick of sense at all. Come on, I'm in Missouri, you know what a lick of sense means, you've heard that before, surely? Um, I mean, this makes no sense whatsoever. It's got a 135,000-man army assembled together of Midian and Amalek and the children of the east, it says. So there's an alliance there, and they're coming uh, ready to do war with the Israelites. Now it appears not just to oppress them, but take over the land completely. And so they are about to go to war, and this is when the Lord says, no, there are too many. So we look at this, and we say, from the human standpoint, this makes no sense whatsoever. And I say to that, that's exactly right. That's a, it makes no sense from the human standpoint. But from the standpoint of faith, if you understand, God requires faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For if you come to God, you must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So if we look from the standpoint of faith, well, yeah, this makes all the sense in the world. But what is God doing actually? I mean, why does he say it that way? 32,000 men assembled together, uh, and, and now he's got it reduced down to 300 men is what it's going to come to. And he says, you have too many men for me. How does this make any sense? Well, if we don't understand the main objective of God and what is taking place here, it will never make sense. So that if we went up to the people that were assembled with uh, Midian, and there are 32,000 strong in the, uh, uh, with Gideon, and the Midianites are encamped up here 135,000 strong, then if we went to any of those men, and we said to them, okay, now uh, Gideon has blown the trumpet and we've got this army together, what is the objective? What is the purpose? Why is this army together? And I will guarantee you, to a man they would have said, to get us out from under the oppression of the Midianites. That's what it was. In fact, I think you could take the average uh, Bible reader and just ask them the question, for this army of 32,000 men to be assembled together uh, at the blowing of the trumpet, what is the objective? What is the main purpose for them coming together? I dare say that the larger percent of the casual Bible reader would say, well, obviously it's to get them out from under the oppression of the Midianites. And that is not the main objective. The main objective is that this people come back to God. Do we remember where they have been? They haven't been serving God. Do we remember that they got all shook up because God had the man pull the altar of Baal down and destroy it and cut down the grove? Okay, so where has their devotion been? Certainly not with God. Their devotion has been with Baal. And so the main objective of God is not, oh, my poor people, I heard their cry, and my main objective is to get them out from under the miserable oppression of the Midianites. If that was his objective, he probably would have not only had 32,000 men there, but 132,000 men there. Is everybody with me here? But that wasn't God's objective. Hand-to-hand combat and the battle and the war, that wasn't his objective. The objective was to get this people back to God where they belong, see? And so that is the thing that we have to remember. As a matter of fact, that's the way we ought to look at all the struggles and the issues of life. Rather than just uh, looking at our problems and our issues and the things that might be heavy burden upon us or that might oppress us, we might ought to look at it and not just say, how can I get out from under this, but why has God allowed me to be under this? And what am I supposed to learn from God as a result of this? Does everybody listen to this? That's probably the way I'm supposed to look at the trials that have come in my life. That's probably the way you're supposed to look at the disappointments maybe and trials that have come in your life. And cry out to God and say, God, this burden is too heavy. I'm bringing my burden and I'm casting it down to you. Uh, but we've got to understand the main objective of heaven or the main objective of God is always this, our fellowship with him. Our, our standing with him, our communion with him, because God, oh boy, this is going to go for good, is far less concerned about our personal comfort than most of us realize. And where we are in our walk with him and fellowship with him is more significant to God than whether we are well or not well. Boy, that is so contrary. You, you look at the vast majority of prayer requests and prayer lists, and uh, we're in churches all the time, I get bulletins and so forth and setting a few uh, meetings where they go through the prayer list and everything, and I've noticed that almost all the prayer requests. I, look, I'm not being negative. I'm not pleased. Don't look at me like you sour head, you. But now listen, just listen to me carefully. They all have to do with this person is ill, and this individual is sick, and we want to pray for their health, they get strong, and that they get back on their feet. Uh, uh, Brother Sam, are you saying we shouldn't do that? Heavens, no. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, I've been through a few things my wife has and our family has, such as that. And there are people that have prayed for us about those things. I appreciate it. And I got a list that I went through today of people that I prayed for in this matter. But I think it's uh, significant and important to us that the vast majority of prayer requests in the Bible were just not that somebody would get better for being better's sake. And that the purpose of God is greater than our personal comfort and how we feel that God's purpose is accomplished in our life and that we are in fellowship with him and communion with him and walking with him is more important to us than how we feel physically. And if it's not physical health, then it's a job or finances or something like that. And all of those things it's right and appropriate. Don't walk out the door and say, he doesn't even believe we ought to pray for the sick. Don't say that. You didn't hear me say that. Don't, don't treat me like you treat the media and the media treat each other and all that kind of stuff. Don't do that. I'm not saying that. Pray. I pray for sick people. I told you. I have a prayer list. I'll bring it tomorrow night if you need me to. And I'll show you. And I pray for these people. And I got it checked off when I pray for it. And when it's their turn to get prayed for again and stuff like that. Of course we're going to do things like that. But do you understand that primarily what God is doing when He allows His people to come under suffering or under some kind of a burden or some kind of oppression, either God allowed it to happen or He brought it. I said either He allowed it to happen or He brought it. Okay, I got one amen the first time, two the second time. I'm going to try it one more time. Either He allowed it to happen in our life or He brought it. If we can get complete ascend here, we can move on. If not, I'm gonna have to camp here a while. And, and that's true. So what we're supposed to do, do we want to help them under this oppression, or this burden, or this pain, or this bad ill feeling, or something like do we want out from under it? Yes. But shouldn't it be significant to us too why it's here? Or what is it that God wants me to learn from this? What is he trying to teach me? That's what he's doing with these people, of Israel. Does God want them liberated from Midianite oppression? Of course. He didn't give them the promised land to suffer under the Midianites forevermore. Of course God wants them out from under, excuse me, but just for them to get delivered from the oppression of the Midianites and then go right back to Baal wouldn't accomplish much now, would it? And unless God teaches the lesson that he is going to teach them, I submit that's precisely what would have happened. That they would have gone with 130, uh, uh, let's see how many men they have, You yeah, 132,000 men. They'd have gone against 135,000 and they'd have gone around, God said, they would vaunt themselves against me if we go with that number. Now what does that mean? They'd go around flexing their muscles, like see what we did? I mean, we were outnumbered 135,000 to 32,000 is 42 to one, just to be precise about it. 4.2 to one. And so if they win this war, four points, I might remind you of something. They've won wars before when they were outnumbered. God didn't set his affection upon them because they were more in number than any other people. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 7. God didn't set his affection upon them because they were more in number. God didn't set his affection on them because he could see in them uh, the ability for military might. That isn't why God set his affection upon them. God set his affection upon them because he loved them. That's what the Bible says. Why did God love Israel? Because God loved Israel. Well, that's no answer. Well, if it's God's answer, it's a good answer. Why did He love Israel? Because of Himself, not because of them. Have you read much about them? (laughs) Or do we know much about ourselves? Why does God love you? I have to ask myself. Why does God love me? Because that's who God is. He didn't look down in uh, the farm uh, west of Perry, Oklahoma and say, "Boy, oh, there's a little lovable boy right there. That isn't what happened. I was a little sinner like everybody else. And my sisters were driving me deeper into sin. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking about that. But no, I'm serious about that. That's how God looked upon them. And so God's main concern is their fellowship with him. And if he lets it go as it is, then he said it, so I'm sure it's so. If he let them win with 32,000 men, they would bunt themselves against him, excuse me, and who would get the glory for this? They would get the glory for this. And then how much devotion would they show to God? They go right back to Baal, and God knew it. So that's why he calls them aside, and he says to Gideon, you got too many men here. There are too many men for you. So now he's going to divide them up. And he's going to divide them up In this incredible way, I I might remind you, I just noticed on my notes, I I would like to say that how we see God working here is fairly typical throughout Scripture. And just to put some Bible verse words to it, let me just say, uh, kind of paraphrase what the Apostle Paul said. Paul said, it's in our weakness that we are made strong. Remember, when God called Gideon, he said, go in this thy might. And the last words he said to him in that initial contact with with Gideon was, I will be with thee. In other words, God is letting him know, son, I'm not asking you to do this with the ability that you have where you are in your life. You're going to go in this my might. And you're going to have strength according to the strength that I give unto you. And and so I just uh, read a quote uh, just lately from uh, W.B. Riley. W.B. Riley said about this account, he said, alas, alas, how long, how long has God tried to teach us that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord. And that's what he is teaching them. I mean, that that quote comes from Zechariah, hundreds of years ahead of them. But the principle is here, what is God saying to them? In weakness, you are made strong. So what is he doing? He is weakening their numbers. Why? So they can know his strength. See, he is weakening their numbers so they can know his strength. And the Apostle Paul put it that way, and he said, he's the one that said, uh, not many wise are chosen, and not many mighty men are chosen. And God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And Israel is not going to be able to glory in their flesh here. (laughs) When this tale is done, ladies and gentlemen, to God be the glory, and that's the whole purpose of it, and their fellowship with God. So, here's what he does. Uh, we start down now in verse number 3. Uh, therefore go and proclaim in the ears, Seven, chapter 7 verse 3, now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead and so he is going to separate those that are fearful. Now I, I marked it just so I could read it to you out of Deuteronomy 20, you don't need to turn there but you can Mark it down and read it later. But there in Deuteronomy, before they went into the land, Moses has given them instruction. And Moses gave them instruction from God about this type of a situation. And here's what he said. That when you're ready to go into conflict, are you listening now? And you're ready to go into battle and ready to go into war, he said, uh, the officer shall speak further unto the people and they shall say, what man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. Okay, so let's put it another way. If you find that somebody's a coward, well, that's what it means to be fearful in this situation. Okay, it's too harsh a word for the 21st century, so maybe I shouldn't say it. But I already said it, so I'm going to go ahead and stick with it. Yeah. I don't want to feel a social pressure here to back off on that. So if somebody is found to be a coward and afraid to go to battle, send them home. Why? Well, because they're not going to do you much good. See, the idea here is for God to use these men in this conflict, in this battle, and a a sub-point, the first is to come back to God, a sub-point is to be free, uh, uh, free from the oppression of the Midianites. And the Bible says that the fear of man bringeth a snare. So if you got a soldier that himself is ensnared, then he's not going to help other people that are ensnared. And what it's going to do is spread. It's contagious. You know how one guy like you, you maybe see this in football games for those of you that are worldly enough to watch that kind of stuff. (laughs) But anyway, uh, you've seen in football games where Somebody comes in the game, and one guy can come in the game at a critical time and fire up the whole uh, 11-man team. I mean, he can. And and I've seen it where uh, an offense goes off, and the quarterback is talking to the defense as they're coming on, and one guy can take a, a man, and his energy and his enthusiasm is contagious, and everybody else gets more fired up. Well, the flip side of the coin is when somebody's dispirited, disheartened, afraid, fearful, cowardly. When they're that way, you want to get them out of there. Why? It's contagious. He might make the guy next to him that may be teetering just a little bit, he may make him go over the edge. So that's what he says. So send them home. So I want you to get the picture in your mind that Gideon is standing before. I, I picture it this way. I don't know if it's exactly this way, but picture uh, Gideon stand before thirty-two thousand men. He has the instruction from God. It's too many for me. If somebody is afraid, send them home. And so Gideon stands up with this outstanding loudspeaker system they have to speak to uh, to thirty-two thousand men, and he says, "All right, men." How many of you are afraid to go to battle? Raise your hand. And I'm thinking, even if I'm afraid, I'm too stinking proud to raise my hand and admit it. Any other men in here that might feel that way? I'm not good to deny that I would be afraid. Uh, I'm not. In fact, courage doesn't really mean you're not fearful. It just doesn't mean fear doesn't stop you. And so uh, so I'm thinking, oh, not many of these men are going to raise their hand and admit it among other men for crying out loud. Maybe if he did it one-on-one on to- one on one in a private setting, I might admit that I'm too afraid to go to battle. But, okay, how many of you men are afraid? 22,000 hands unashamedly <laughs> go in the air. And he said, get out of here. Go back home. You're going to spread fear. Others are saying, what is he doing? That's that's a lot of hands. And 22,000 men took off and went home. Left them 10,000. Now it's 14.5 to 1. Just to be precise. 135,000 to 10,000, 14.5 to 1. Or 13.5. Where's my, come on, 13.5. That makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? (laughs) 13.5 to 1. Gideon says, oh boy. So these men here weren't afraid. Well, they might be now. (laughs) Could we have that vote again, you know? (laughs) And so there's 10,000 men. And uh, I'm sure Gideon did something like this. Okay. Okay. And not wanting to cause any discouragement to anybody. Probably looked at that 10,000 and said, okay, we're about ready to go, man. So you be there, and you be prepared. And I'm, I'm going to get things in order here and we're going to take off and we know where the Midianites are and we're going to make our move and here we go. So just hold on just a second. God says, no, Gideon, you hold on. <laughs> That's what he says down here in verse number four. The Lord said unto Gideon, there are yet too many, too many people. Outnumbered 13.5 to 1, too many people. Now, what do you do? Well, get in. I'm going to show you something here about men. I'm going to show you some character in some men. I'm going to show you the lack of in others. So, here's what you do you take them down to the water. And I've wondered about that myself just as so I read it and study it. Why, where'd the water come in? And then it dawned on me. They just ate the dust of 22,000 men that went running home. And that would make a man thirsty. Come on, I've eaten dust before. I live in Oklahoma, and the wind comes sweeping down the plains, and a farm boy, man, I've eaten a lot of dust in my days. It makes you want to drink water, for sure. But another thing that might make a man's mouth go dry is we're not outnumbered point. Uh, 2 to 1, we are now outnumbered 13.5 to 1. That might make a man's mouth dry right there, need some water. So God says, take them down to the water and I want to show you something. And what I show you, get in. then I, I want you to divide them according to what I show you. The ones that I say put over here, you put them over there. And the ones that I say put over there, you put them there. And the ones that I say you go with, you go with. The ones I say you don't go with, they don't go with you and you don't go with them. So they do and they go down to the water. 10,000 men. Now, I just try to picture this scene. I don't know if they had to line up and take turns. I don't know. Or if there was a body of water there where 10,000 men could get all around. But I know this. Uh, there were 9,700 men that did something like this. They went to the water, and they got down on their knees, and they stuck their head down, and they are choking, and they just started drinking water. Stuck their face in the water and started drinking just like that. And, and that's, that's the way they drank. Did you notice that, Gideon? Mm -hmm. And then there were 300 men that went down to the water, something like this. Uh, I may need help getting up here a little bit, so be ready, but I'm just saying. Uh, uh, 300 men went down like this, and they got water like this, and they were looking around, never took their eyes off of their surroundings. The Midianites were ruthless, and they were wicked, and they were evil. There could be a Midianite. In fact, there could be five Midianites behind that big clump of bushes right over there. Or right over that knoll of dirt and sand, right over there, there could be several Midianites sneaking up to terrorize, to kill, to pick off some of our men, to intimidate, to harass. Don't think they didn't do stuff like that. They did. It's a part of their warfare. And, and so they're, they're doing like this, and they're drinking their water and lapping it like a dog, j- excuse me, just as thirsty as the other guys. You're supposed to get that point. Just as thirsty as the other guys. Just as much in need of water and want of water as the other men that stuck their head in the water and started drinking and made gluttons out of themselves. These guys are just as thirsty, but they're keen and they're aware, they're mindful of the dangers that are about them and they're alert and they're diligent and they check around and never take their eyes off the surroundings and looking after each other and they drink their water like this and did they get as much as the other guys? Probably not but they got enough to help them and to satisfy them and then went about their business. Now Gideon, did you see how that went? Sure did. We'll separate them. So you got 9,700 over here you got 300 over here. If I'm Gideon, I look at it and say, okay, man, let's go. And God says, no, it's the wrong crowd. It's it's this over here. And he's going to go with the 300. What do you think about that? See, a a person has to be fit. You know, I mentioned last night, I'm going to bring it up here again tonight. You know what a lot of people want? They want the deliverance of God. They want the provision of God. They want the presence of God. But excuse me, they don't have any intention of any self-discipline in their own life. Uh, no, that's not what they plan. No, I want God to deliver me out of this. I, I want delivered out of this financial situation. I want delivered out of this marital stress. I want delivered out of this uh, uh, miserable sickness that has plagued my body. I want myself delivered from this oppression that has come upon my soul. I want God to free me from this. I've, I've read some Psalms and I've asked God to help me and I've called on the Lord and asked Him to help me. And I'm going to do this, okay? Well, let's see how serious you are? Or is it still all about yourself? Because of that 9,700, excuse me, self-centered, they weren't looking after their fellow soldiers. They weren't looking after the ideas or the threats of the bigger cause. They weren't looking after any of that. They knew one thing, I'm dry, I want water, I'm getting me water, that's what I'm doing. And they paid no attention to anything else. Where you've got others that were saying, I may have the same appetite for water that they did, but I don't go about satisfying it the same, because this requires diligence. We are under threat and danger always. And they exercise that kind of discipline. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. Let's talk about that. Because um, if you listen to preaching, and you hear a preacher talking about, let's say, the Lordship of Christ and His authority over our life, and, and then preach as it ought to be preached, that we are to totally surrender to the Lord, and our life is to count for God. And, 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 I, I, I'm, and I'm just telling you how I remember hearing it at Silver State Baptist Youth Camp. I remember hearing it after I got called to preach when I was 16 years old and still going to youth camp and hearing the preaching. I remember hearing it in revivals. And when I heard a preacher preach about total surrender, I I really was under the impression this means that I am totally sold out only to the things of God. And I can't enjoy any of the things of life that themselves are not evil, but they are contrary to just being totally sold out to God. Did you notice that these guys that were very disciplined, they got the benefit of the same water they drank. And I'm not one that believes, nor do I believe the Bible teaches, that because we are dedicated or sold out to the Lord, that there are not pleasures of life of which we should never taste. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. That we should never taste. Since I brought up taste, let me read you another quote here. If I can find it here real fast. I want to read it because he says it better than I could say it. Now, I want you to listen to this. Okay, let me look here. Here it is. Page 8. Can you believe we're already at page 8? And I've only got 23 pages, so we're just... No, I don't have 23. I'm kidding. Listen to this. Uh... Here's what the man said. I don't know who it was. It came out of Clark's commentary. I was preaching in the Kansas City area, and I went to a Nazarene Bible college there and went into their library and found some good stuff when I was studying this. And so I found this out of a Clark's commentary. Did you ever hear Clark's commentary? Yeah? And a bunch of old, it's old, old stuff. And here's what this old-timer said. He said, Those only are the true warriors of Jehovah who, when and enjoyment is offered, such as refreshment at a living well, that's what he called it, any of the pleasures of life, okay, Uh, a true soldier or warrior of Jehovah, tasted it only in passing and while standing on the alert. That's what he got out of this part, where these guys, you know, did this instead of sticking their head in water. So since he wrote in eloquent language that more intelligent 21st century American English scholars would never understand, let me read it again. That was total sarcasm right there. and I can tell it wasn't appreciated, so I'm going to go on with the message here. Those only are the war, true warriors of Jehovah who, when an enjoyment is offered, such as refreshment at a living well, taste it only in passing and while standing on the alert, not seeking enjoyment and the crouching down to it in indolent comfort, but mindful every minute of the business at hand and the desired victory, only lapping the water upon the way. That's the way he put it. Okay, so now let me bring it down to just just where we live. Uh, Let me see here. I'm acting like I'm thinking real hard, but I already know what I'm going to say. Uh, Let me think. You think it's wrong to pull for a football team? I agree with one preacher I heard say, football is a violent sport. It is a vicious, tough, mean sport. And I'm only going to watch it when I get a chance. That's what he said about it. But they're trying to make it a sissy sport, but it's still pretty rough now. But anyway, do you think it's wrong? Uh, My dad and my brothers, 8 and 10 years older than me, big OU Sooner fans. And I was raised 24 miles from Oklahoma State University and then wound up pastoring there for 16 years. Barry Sanders, you might recognize that name. He came to our church a couple of times. One of the assistant coaches that went on to do some head coaching. He was in our church for five years and he gave me good seats. Do you think it's wrong for me to go to a football game? I've been a Sooner fan all my born days. I'm actually bipolar. I like OSU too. So I know they say you can't do that. Well, I've been doing it all my life. So I guess you can't do it. And so, but I've been a big Sooner fan primarily for football. And have lived within an hour and a half, and I've been to five games down there my whole life. And I've wanted to go to a lot more, especially since I lived in Dale City the first seven years, and I've lived in Oklahoma City the last 32 years. And I've wanted to go to more. It's, it's 30 minutes. It's less than 20 minutes from my house to where Oklahoma plays football. And, and I like them. But you know when I got to where I knew I was over the top? It was 1981. I was passing me Stillwater. My dad, uh, of the sickness I spoke of the other day, for those of you that remember, my dad had had a kidney removed and was recovering from surgery, and he had that surgery in the mid-September, and now this is about the 26th, I think it is, of September. My dad wanted to know if I wanted to come over and watch Oklahoma play Southern Cal. And uh, since they were both rated right up there, I think number one and two, I forget which was which, and this was a battle of two uh, football giants at that time, and so um, my dad said, you want to come over and watch the game with me? Well, I use the justification is, my dad's a sick man. And he needs his son there by his side. So I'm going to go watch that football game. <laughs> and so I did. And I enjoyed being with my dad and watch watched the game. Now, the problem was, uh, by the time we got into the fourth quarter, the game was still very, very tight. And Oklahoma had a slim lead. But we were having a prayer meeting for a revival that was starting Sunday. And so I had to drive back to Stillwater. It's only 24 miles. But I had to drive back to Stillwater. So I was going to listen to the rest of it on the radio. Well, back then, you know, we didn't have all the FM stuff and all of that. And so the electrical lines along there messed up my reception. So I had to get off the highway and drive on dirt roads all the way home, away from those lines in order to listen to the last part of that ball game. And so I was listening, and OU's defense was being tough. I mean, they were holding them, holding them. And then Southern Cal started. And just about t- t- five minutes from the church, Southern Cal scored. The game ended, and OU lost. And I was in such a frame of mind, this went through my mind. I'm I'm confessing this. This is 1981, so give me a break. This isn't something I've struggled with just lately. (laughs) But in 1981, getting ready to have a prayer meeting, special prayer meeting on Saturday night for revival. Here's what crossed my mind, Brother Mill. I wish I wouldn't even have in this prayer meeting. I was so bent out of shape. Because, I mean, who doesn't hate Southern Cal? Come on. But anyway, I was so bent out of shape that my Sooners lost that game at that point. It actually passed through my mind. I wish we didn't even have this prayer meeting. And it was at that point I was sitting outside the church in my car. It was that point I thought, this is way too far. I've gone way too far this is wrong before I could get out of my car and go in there and have a prayer meeting with other men. I'd have a private prayer meeting with God and confess how carnal, how ridiculously devoted to that football team and that football game that I was. That's over the top, over the top. It's, it's too much. Rather than tasting it, I was indulging in it. You understand what I'm saying? Rather than tasting the enjoyment of sport, Paul knew something about sport, the way he wrote, and rather than tasting and enjoying what I could of it, no, it, it, was, it had me, it had me. And I'm not saying it it never tried to rise back up again in my life. I'm not saying that. My wife's sitting right over here. What do you want me to do? Stand here and lie right in front of her? I mean, it's not like I never had to deal with that issue again. I'm just saying. I knew this is too much and this is wrong. Instead of tasting it, it had me. Um, Do you you know Richard King? He would be happy for me to tell this. A a wonderful servant of God. Maybe there are people in this room that uh, ever were affected by the ministry of Brother Richard King. Dear man of God, suffering from Alzheimer's right now and and such as that. But I remember Richard King sitting and telling me with tears. He said, Brother Sam, I love to go deer hunting. I love to go deer hunting. But he said, honestly, I, I had to quit completely for a while because it got to the point that's all I could think about is deer hunting. And I was taking time away when I should have been making calls and what I should have been studying, when I should have been visiting people. And I justified it by saying, well, the deer season is short and this won't be long. But he said it had me. And he, and he sat there with tears and saying that I had to come before God and say, deer hunting by itself is not a sin, but I made it a sin. What do you think about that? Instead of tasting it, it had him. It had him. That kind of thing. You go to Southwest Baptist Church, and there's a brother in the church now that you go around, and he's greeting people, and he's helping people, and drives a bus, and he's a soul winner and uh, a businessman. And in his uh, business, he prospered a number of years ago, and he grew up a kid, a big racing fan. And so when his business had prospered to the point that he could get in, and I'm talking about drag racing, I'm talking about those kind of automobiles that are hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I mean, just, you know, it just costs a lot of money to get into that thing. And, and so after his business prospered a while, his uh, effectiveness at church began to go down and down and down and such as that. And then he got back on the road and went on the car racing, drag racing circuit. And, he went, he went also to be a chaplain, and I, I'm sure he helped some people. I'm sure he talked to people about Christ. I'm sure he did. <clears throat> but Sunday morning church at the racetrack is, I don't think, what the Scripture has in mind. Nor cowboy church at the rodeo and stuff like that. I'm, I'm glad for everybody that hears about the gospel and gets saved. I'm thankful for that. But that's not what the Bible has in mind about New Testament church life. And... Uh, And so he really got back into it. I mean, really into it and and big time And, and successful as far as, you know, what I understand, because I never followed drag racing. But anyway, yeah, successful, made money, big time stuff, doing fine, just fine. I witnessed people, I talked to people, and then one of his best friends got killed in one of those races, and it shook him up. And he said it brought him to his senses to realize. No matter how I want to look at it, this has my life. It has me. And God didn't. Does everybody listen to this? Brother Sam said, drag racing is a wicked, evil sin. You didn't hear me say that. But if it owns a man, I'm not the one that said it became a sin. He's the one that said it became a sin. Is there anything else that can get that way? Can the ambition for more, the desire for more, you, you know what John D. Rockefeller's middle name was? John D. You know what that D stood for? Davison. So there, I can tell you're impressed. John Davison Rockefeller, 27th uncle, or cousin, or something, to my dad and his brother, so, one of my relatives. I check the mail every day. Surely I'm going to get some of that stuff. <laughs> and so they asked John Davison Rockefeller when he had accumulated millions and millions and millions, when millions was like collecting billions and billions of billions, how much money is enough? One more dollar. And he never lost his ambition for one more dollar, one more dollar. That can happen in business. It can happen with the thirst and the hunger for money. It it actually can. Just to toil and to work and, and to give yourself to it. Just to give yourself completely to it so that it has you. You can do that. I mentioned last night, I'll mention it again. To choose careers that take us away from the ability to serve the Lord. I, 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 I'm i not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell anybody what to do, but I would challenge young people. I do challenge young people. Think about this. If I choose this career, how is this going to affect my service to the Lord? You may not be called to preach. You may not be called to be a missionary. You know, you may not have the ability to stand up here and lead the singing and play instruments. You you may not ever be on a church staff. I mean, it's just, you're not supposed to be on a church staff, but you're supposed to serve the Lord. Don't we understand that the apostle Paul said it this way? No, you're not. To whom ye you yield yourself servant to obey, his servant ye are. To whom ye obey. And there are people that are servants to their career. They don't have a career to get them by. They have a career because that's their life. It's what defines them. That's opposite. I mean, that's, that's exactly what this is about. No, it's about them guys drinking water. We'll put anything there. And these guys said, I want what I want the way I want it. And they paid no attention to anything else. And they couldn't be used in the process of freeing this people uh, from Midianite bondage and being in fellowship with God in the meantime because they were too self-centered and they tried to satisfy what cannot be satisfied. And that is the appetites of the flesh. They cannot be satisfied. The things of this world cannot satisfy. I said, they cannot. Read the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. It's very, very clear on this matter. Don't have time to go preach it, but I feel like it. Read it. That's right. So, so these 300 guys here, they were just as thirsty. They wanted water just as bad. But they understood there's something more important than me getting my immediate thirst Satisfied and filling my belly full of water, no matter how much I want it. There's something more important than that. What is it? Uh, We are under attack. We're on a mission for God. Gideon blew the trumpet. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. The spirit of the Lord must have come upon some others beside Gideon as well. And here they are, and they are sensitive to what's going on, and they are giving attention. So they taste of what they need, and they get enough to get them by. But it doesn't have them. Their desire for water did not own them. Everybody getting this? That speaks to our lives. I mean, it's consistent with the whole Bible message. I, I just quoted uh, out of Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. I might just go ahead and quote some more out of the book of Romans in chapter 8, where Paul said, um, He said, uh, They, what did he say? It was really good. You're going to be blessed by it. If I can come up, with, but he said, uh, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. In other words, if you're driven by the appetite of the flesh, what are you going to give attention to? The things of the flesh. Oh, I love God with all my heart. But if you're totally given to the things of the flesh and God gets token time and token effort, then you're lying to yourself. For they that are after the flesh do mind. How do I know if somebody's a carnal person? Because they're given to the things of the flesh. They are governed by the appetites of the flesh. See, and we talk about a whole bunch of things. That's how you know. But they that are of the Spirit give attention to what spiritual things. If we're controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, which is how all of us are supposed to live, that guy is—I mean, that guy stands—that guy right there—he stands out as a member of this church. I'm telling you, he's just—he's just a spirit-filled man. I'm just telling you, you see, he just stands out. Now, you know my take on that, Brother Bill? Isn't that sad? If you got a man that here is where everybody, all of us are supposed to be, and he stands out because he is? Is this making any sense? Aren't we all supposed to be spirit-filled? Aren't we all supposed to be aware of the time? Jesus said, you can discern the weather and all that kind of stuff. Can't you discern the times? Are we not discerning enough about the day in which we live and what is taking place in our culture and in our world? Aren't we a little bit concerned that maybe our life uh, needs to be focused on things of God, seeing that uh, the times in which we live? Yeah. Yeah. So, boys, that's, that's some stuff to think about. stuff to think about hobbies and more money and careers and promotion on and on it goes I'm not the oldest person in this room I'm not trying to act like I am but I'm old enough to say you don't want to waste a lot of time friend because that old calendar flips over pretty fast And my brothers and I, they're 85 and 87. When we get together and talk, we talk about when our mother was this stage. My dad died at 70. And when her family, she was one of eight. And when her family was in their 70s and 80s. And we thought, wow. And it feels like we did this about once and they're gone and we're here. It happens pretty fast. You don't want to waste time. You don't. You're on God's time. You don't want to waste it. Now, uh, look at verse seven and eight. We got to quit, where he says, "Unto Gideon the people are yet too many." He brought them down to the water, and. um, so then, look down in verse 7. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will, say it please. By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all other people go every one unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he. Sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those three hundred men, of the uh, three hundred men, and the host of Midian was beneath them, in the valley. I, I have to close with this. It's time. But let me just say, at this point, 300 men against one hundred thirty-five thousand. Humanly, impossible. From the human standpoint, absurd. It's absurd. Just like what God expects of us is absurd to think about without His strength. Without total surrender to Him. Uh, I'm going to do this quick, but I, I want you to get it. I, Sam Davison, am called upon to live a holy life unto God in this place, in this world of sin, I'm supposed to be holy because He is holy. Can I have your attention? For me to be that in this place and this world is ridiculous. I can't. I can't. That, that's what we're supposed You don't roll up your life and say, I'm going to be Christ-like. I'm going to live a holy life. Uh, but as He which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation that has to do with every facet of your life and every all manner of conversation. And I look at me. I know me. I know my flesh. Do you know you? Are we willing to admit to our fleshly appetites? Are we willing to admit to our fleshly frailties? Are we willing to admit that there's a conflict that goes on, and the Apostle Paul said that it's going to go on until Jesus comes again and changes this vile body till it's fashioned like into His own glorious body? Did you know as long as we're living in this flesh, there's going to be a war? A war between the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God that is in us, and the war between the Spirit and the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other. And for me to try to live the Christian life and the strength and the energy of my flesh is as ridiculous as taking 300 men and telling them now, you go in your might and you defeat 135,000 enemy." That is an absurd expectation except for God. And for you and I to try to live a holy life in this flesh, in this world, except for Christ in us is an absurd expectation. That's why Paul wrote, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, read Romans 7, it'll tell you about his own battle with the flesh, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I just read in my Bible reading this morning, the Gospel of John, that where he said, that greater is he that is in you, than he that is in the world. (laughs) And apart from him, we're toast. We're toast. Yeah. And the same thing would be true of the role of a church. Eight billion people in the world. Isn't it good to be a part of a growing church and where people want to be here and where uh, new people are coming in and I've met folks that haven't been saved long and haven't been members here long. Some that have been saved a while and got away from the Lord and came back. I've met all kinds of folks here this week and have enjoyed every minute. Isn't it good to be a part of that? And isn't it good to see the missions offering? You know, it's probably going to go up probably around 200,000 this year. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. But in not our... Isn't in our job ridiculous that from a local New Testament church we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? That, the Great Commission is given to the church. It wasn't given to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association or somebody's TV ministry worldwide, international. No. It was given to the local church. I remember South uh, Bible Baptist in Stillwater, we were creeping up to that $100,000 mark for Missions, and I thought, if we can just ever get to the $100,000 mark, there's no telling what we can do. We got up to 98,000, I mean 96 and then 98,000. And what really made me mad is they never reached 100000 till until McCracken became their pastor. And that really, that was a hard pill to swallow right there. But anyway, $100,000, and you know what I found out when we got around 100000 I was just as frustrated as I ever was before because the need is so much greater than one church's resources. Go to Southwest Baptist Church, and the pastor there is a wonderful missions church, and the pastor that I succeeded, he'd been there 29 years, he said, uh, Sam, someday you'll see a half a million dollar missions offering given at this church. And he said, wouldn't that be something? I said, that'd be amazing. And I remember thinking about it, and then it grew from two hundred eighteen thousand to three hundred, and then three hundred fifty, and then if it hit five hundred thousand, and about two thousand, we hit a million dollars in missions. And since two thousand or two thousand and one, we've never been under a million dollars And this past year. Is a million three hundred and some odd thousand dollars per missions. And you know where we are? Just as frustrated. I don't mean frustrated in a negative way, but I'm just saying the need out there is so much greater than our resources. And so we look at that and we say, how are we supposed to do that? I mean, if we had a million dollars or five million dollars, you think five million dollars to get the world out? Fifty million. How about a hundred million dollars? I'm just saying the need of this world and evangelization and the the work of the gospel is so much greater than our resources, but for God, but for God, he's the one that can take those five loaves and two fishes and look what in the world he can do with them. Little is much when God is in it. Indeed, I'm just saying. And our responsibility is to be obedient. And what we've got to understand is we look overwhelmed by the need of this world that is in basic, major rejection of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Read the Scripture, and you'll see that that is so. And here we are in our little congregations here and there trying to reach the world. And it's totally ridiculous but for God. But for God. And at the day of accounting, we won't be accountable for whether or not we put the gospel in every house, in every country in the world. But we will be responsible whether or not we obeyed him in what he called us to do. Because you know what? I'm done now. You know, I I kept saying 4.2 to 1. Uh, They were outnumbered 13.5 to 1. 450 to 1. You know, that kind of thing. You know, actually, that's not right. It was always 135,000 to 1. That one is God. And how this story ends tomorrow night, (laughs) it's amazing and wonderful. But the question is, how's our life story going to end? Lord, I pray that you would use this to encourage, help, convict, motivate, The judgment seat of Christ is going to settle and expose so many things. There's no question about that. I pray that we would all understand that we will give an account of our life to you at the judgment seat of Christ. If there's anybody in this room that says, you know, like Brother Sam was with that football stuff, what's got my affection and my devotion is hindering me from where I'm supposed to be with God. Like Brother King who said, deer hunting almost had control of him. That's not what God intended. Is it good for a man to get out in the wild and Have some peace in the countryside. Take in some of the meat that, according to your word, is provided by your hand. No, that's not wrong. Is it wrong for a man to live for that? Yes, that's wrong. Is it wrong to take a powerful car up and down a racetrack? That in itself is not wrong. Is it wrong to be controlled by that? That's wrong. Is it wrong for a man to have a job? A career? To be diligent, faithful, work at it? Be a great testimony? Use the resources to raise a family for the glory of God and support the work of the ministry? No, that's not wrong. Is it wrong to live for that job and be governed and controlled by it? Yes, that's wrong. Is it wrong to have... Uh, strong, strong family ties? A close knit and strong family? No. But is it wrong when it's the family that governs our ability to serve the Lord or not? Because we've got to keep everybody in the ha- family pacified by being here, or there, and what they expect. Is that wrong? Of course it's wrong. It's not what you intended. Help us to think about these things. This isn't an accusation. I don't know who all's here. I don't know the circumstances of lives in this room to stand up and say these things. But your Holy Ghost knows. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. And where there's a need of revival, might your Holy Ghost work, and may it be produced. And why not tonight? If somebody's here never saved playing some game with their soul, and they're still not saved by faith in Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed to take away our sins, I pray for their salvation. Are there some here tonight that need to take a stand with this authentic New Testament Baptist church and identify as a member of this church? Help them to do what they ought to do. Thank you again for your goodness and use this invitation for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation.